morning to you all. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is a joy and a privilege to be here with you this morning and to present God's Word to you. This morning, we're continuing our study on prayer. Prayer. We've been covering prayer for the last three weeks, and we'll be covering it for two more weeks, this week and next week. And I'd like to give you an acronym to help you understand further what prayer is. I'm not going to charge for this portion of the sermon. That will come later. So this is free. This is the acronym. It's, it's good for children to remember, for teenagers, for everyone. And this is the acronym. ACTS. What is prayer? That's an important question for us to ask. The answer is ACTS. A-C-T-S. Like the book of the Bible. Acts. What does the A stand for? The A stands for adoration. When we pray, we adore God. When we come to God in prayer, we lift Him up. We, th- we, we adore Him. We exalt Him. We praise Him. We magnify His name. We say, God, You are great. You are tremendous. You are wonderful. You are our Savior. That's to adore Him. That's what adoration means. C. C. The C in Acts means confession. We oftentimes sin, every day we sin, and we ought to come to God with a spirit and a heart of confession. We confess to God our sins. We confess to God that what he says about us is true. Confession. T, thanksgiving. We covered thanksgiving the past three weeks. Thanksgiving is is an essential part of prayer. We give God thanks for all of the blessings, all of the riches that he has given us in Christ, all the spiritual riches, and also the physical riches that he has given us, money, food, family, pleasure. And then lastly, this S in Acts is what we'll be dealing with today. And this S refers to supplication. Prayer is supplication. A component of prayer is that we request from God certain things. We can request from God healing, spiritual healing, physical healing. We can request that God would help other people. But we ask God for certain things, and this is an important part of prayer. And it's this S aspect, this supplication aspect, that we're going to be spending two weeks on, studying to this week and next week. And we get this from Philippians 1.9. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Philippians 1.9. And in this passage, Paul is pivoting from his prayer of thanksgiving to his prayer of supplication, what he wants God to do in the life of the Philippians. And the way I'm going to treat this is I'm going to break the prayer down and apply it to our lives, break down the the theology behind it and the ethics behind it, so that we know how we we should respond. If I pray that God would work in your life, there are certain things that you too ought to do. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this prayer this morning. Philippians 1.9, I'll read through the first part of verse 10. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. The remaining part of, this, of verse 10 and verse 11 will be what we, with what we deal with next week. I'd like to make a couple of observations first about this passage. The first two observations are based upon what's not here what Paul doesn't say. These are very interesting points. The first thing that Paul does not say, Paul Paul does not mention himself. 
Paul doesn't mention himself. He doesn't pray for himself. And it's important to know because Paul is imprisoned for the gospel. Paul is imprisoned for the gospel. But what you see Paul being concerned about is not himself, not his own physical conditions, but the spiritual conditions of the Philippians. Paul does not say, hey, Philippians, you need to pray to get me out of here. Paul is convinced that his imprisonment is for the gospel, and it further advances the gospel. So Paul doesn't mention himself here. Quite an outstanding thought. And this is rooted in selflessness. In our prayers, we should be significantly concerned for the spiritual well-being of others. I don't know that we ought to be more concerned for the spiritual well-being and physical well-being of others, but it is important to note that Paul's posture here is outward. We are to be selfless, and the selflessness ought to make its way in our lives through prayer. And we ought to trust God enough that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we can always pray for other people. No matter what you're going through, no matter what the difficulty you're experiencing, you ought to have this posture of praying for others. Another thing that's missing is that Paul doesn't pray for the physical well-being of the Philippians. Paul does not pray for the physical well-being of the Philippians. Now, that doesn't mean he's not concerned about that. It doesn't mean that he is indifferent to what they're going through physically. But it does suggest a priority, specifically a priority of the spiritual needs of people over the physical needs. And look at verse 129. It's not like the Philippians weren't suffering physically. Paul says this in 129, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So the Philippians are suffering here. And I imagine that it's involving some type of physical harm. But Paul doesn't mention that in his prayer. Paul doesn't address the physical needs of the congregation. More so, he addresses the spiritual needs. And I take that as suggestive. that We ought to pray, first and foremost, for spiritual needs over physical needs. Now, that doesn't mean we don't pray for physical needs. I'm not saying that. We ought to pray for miracles. We ought to pray for God to heal people. But eternally, what matters is spiritual truth, spiritual realities. And Paul suggests that here. And the last point, last application, excuse me, the last observation I'd like to point you to, is just a general application of approaching prayer in Scripture. There are a number of prayers in Scripture that we have. And what you can do, the way to immediately apply that to your life, is for you yourself to pray these prayers. To pray them for yourself to pray them for others, to pray them for this church. So this week, what I've been doing is I've been going through this passage, 9 through 11, and I've been asking that God would fill this church, that he would make our love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve what is excellent. Pray that. Pray that for yourself. Pray that for others, and pray that for this church. In praying Scripture, we unite Scripture with prayer, a powerful spiritual discipline. You can't go wrong praying these prayers. So those are just some observations. The first point for you this morning, first point of my sermon, write this. The centrality of love. The centrality of love. What Paul prays here is for love to abound more and more. That's the main thing that Paul is requesting here. And we get this in verse 9. And it is my prayer. So Paul is telling us what he prays for the Philippians. 
that their love, your love, may abound more and more. To understand what Paul's saying here, to understand the theology behind this passage, I'd like to first draw your attention to the and right at the beginning of verse 9. See that and? And's link ideas. And the idea that's being linked is with reference to the affection of Christ Jesus. Last week we spoke in depth. Last, last week I spoke in depth about that. And the idea here is that Paul is a conduit. That Paul is filled with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God produces in Paul the very love that Christ has for the Philippians. So that Paul is a conduit. Christ pour his, pours his love for the Philippians into Paul. And Paul's overflow is Christ's love itself. That's the idea. And whenever this love arrests a person, what happens is that Paul prays for the love of the Philippians to increase. It's all about love. It's all about love. Paul is filled with the love of Christ, and he prays that others would be filled with the love of Christ. So this and connects the idea of the affections of Christ Jesus with his prayer. Now this love here, Paul doesn't specify what type of love it is. Love is often, I think always, expressed towards things or people or God. And Paul doesn't specify to whom this love is directed. So what type of love are we dealing with here? I take it to be a general love. A love for God and a love for one another. That's really what Christianity is all about. It's about loving God and others. And so I take what Paul says here, the love that Paul is asking God to produce in the Philippians more and more, is a love for God and neighbor. Now, look at this phrase, more and more. Paul's prayer is not that God would give the Philippians love. That's not the prayer. Paul's prayer is that God would give them love, that their love would abound more and more. If I come to you and I say, I pray, this is how you can pray for me. If I say this, I pray that you pray for me that God would give me a greater love for my wife. That assumes that I already love my wife. To say more and more assumes that there's already something there. And Paul is not asking God to start this process of love. Look in 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So God has already started this work of love in the Philippians. And what Paul is asking is Paul is asking that God would abound this love more and more that they would be filled with a greater and deeper sense of love. Not that he would start it, not that he would give them an initial love, but that he would mature the love that he has already started in them. And what this touches upon, the theological point that this touches upon, is this idea of perseverance. Perseverance. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And in this life, we are constantly called to have love, not just initial love for Christ and not just initial love for others, but a love that matures and abounds more and more and more. We are called to a maturing type of love. 
And this is this notion of perseverance. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep loving more and more and more. Look at Philippians. Look at Philippians 3, 12. Philippians 3.12. Paul hits on this notion of perseverance. It's not how you start. It's not how you're doing right now. It's how you end. Listen to what Paul says. Not that I have already obtained this. This is he referring to salvation. Not that I have already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on. Paul is not content with the love that he has. He presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul himself wants to see this same love, this love for God and love for one another, to abound more and more and more. And that's what we are called to do as Christians. That's what God wants from all of us. It's not that we just have an initial love, an initial love that grows yet stagnates, but a love that abounds, that goes on more and more and more. That in our love for God and for others, there's maturity. That's what God wants from us. And I'd like to encourage some people here today. What Paul says, Paul, Paul is not rebuking the Philippians here. There's an implicit encouragement. And the encouragement is, is that God has begun this work in them. And that there is great fruit in the lives of the Philippians. If you're looking for that fruit, go to 1.5. Paul says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul and this church have shared in this partnership in the gospel. There's been a giving of money. The Philippians have financially supported Paul. The Philippians have sent a missionary to Paul to, to minister to him in his need. So there's great communion here. And Paul is not saying, hey guys, you need to get this started. You need to begin this fellowship. No, he's saying, keep going. Keep going. And so many of you here are engaged in gospel ministry. So many of you are like the Philippians. Your love for Christ and your love for others is so evident in this church. There's so many of you here. And my word for you is not one of rebuke, but one of encouragement. And the encouragement is this, to keep going, to keep serving, to keep pouring your life out for others and God. That's the encouragement. There's many obstacles in ministry. There's many obstacles in loving others. Those obstacles vary. Discouragement, general discouragement. We all get discouraged might come in waves. You might be in a really thick part of your life of discouragement. Thanklessness. You're pouring your life out and you don't feel like anyone's recognizing you. No one says thanks. People speaking to you in a way that they shouldn't. Criticizing you when they ought not to. Perceived fruitlessness. Maybe you're pouring your life out for a specific person and it's just not there. Lord, what are you doing? With reference to this issue, I'd encourage you to look at the From Pulpit and Paper this week. Jesse has a wonderful story about perceived fruitlessness. Health issues. Maybe you're ministering, yet you're sick. You have cancer. Or maybe you have an unanswered prayer. 
You've been pouring your life out for God and for others, and yet God hasn't answered a specific prayer that, you, that you've been requesting of Him. Maybe it's a prodigal child. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. The obstacles in ministry are great, and there are many. And what Paul is saying to you this morning is to keep going. To keep going. You have to keep going. And Paul is encouraging you. He recognizes, he recognizes in the Philippians that there is this fruit, there is this work that God has begun. And what God wants us to do is to keep going. Keep ministering. Keep pouring out your life for Christ and for others. That's the type of love that God wants to see in our lives. Second point. The virtues that accompany love. The virtues that accompany love. Love is not undefined in the Bible. It's not some vague sentimentality that kind of floats up in the air. The Bible gives a specific definition to it. And Paul has in mind a specific type of love. What type of love is he asking to abound? Well, it's specified the type of love that Paul wants to see in the Philippians is a love... Look at the end of verse 9. That is associated with knowledge and all discernment. That prepositional phrase is modifying the verb abounding. So Paul doesn't only want to see their love abound, but he also wants their love to abound with these virtues, with knowledge and all discernment. So he's essentially asking for two things, two types of things to abound, knowledge and all discernment and love. He doesn't want just this love without knowledge and all discernment abounding, and he doesn't just want knowledge and all discernment abounding without love. He wants them both. Let's break these words down. The first is knowledge. This word for knowledge, the Greek word here, is not the traditional English word. It doesn't just refer to facts or data. Oftentimes, whenever we think of knowledge, we think of just the mind. And Paul's not saying not teaching that here. It's more than just cognitive. It's more than just data. It's a heart love. It's a love that's full, that's fully assured. It's a love that's set on God and on his purposes in the world. And it's very closely linked to this idea of discernment. Discernment is a type of practical knowledge, a moral wisdom. Life oftentimes presents us with ambiguities, what do I do in this situation? How do I apply Christian principles? How do I live out Christian principles in my life right now in this difficult situation? And a discerning person knows how to do that. A discerning person is tactful. A discerning person knows how to navigate personalities and differences and moral ambiguity and to honor Christ. Someone who is not discerning is constantly asking the question, how do I live a Christian life? even though they've been taught over and over again, they still are just left with the same idea of how do I honor God? So discernment is the knowledge of knowing how to take God's truth and apply it to life. That's what discernment is. And this all here, see this all before discernment? I take it that this all is referring, might be better translated as every. It could say, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and, in, and, in, and with a type of discernment 
that is applicable to every situation. Paul is talking about a discernment that applies to every situation. So this is what Paul is requesting. These are the intellectual, the virtues that should associate with love. And as Christians, this highlights an interesting point of contrast with our culture. We live in a culture in which love kind of goes undefined. It's just based upon how you feel towards another person. In Christianity, the Bible, Paul, Philippians 1, teaches us that that type of thinking is wrong. The Bible teaches a type of love that is discriminatory. It is defined. It picks and chooses. As Christians, we are not allowed to have a reckless type of love, kind of all arms open, just giving the world a big hug. That's not, not what Scripture teaches. There is an important exclusivity towards our love. And one, one popular contemporary Christian song speaks that God's love is reckless. This would suggest that, that that is not the case. God's love is in accordance with knowledge and discernment, and so should our love. Our love is more than sentimentality. Our love is not reckless, it's not whimsical, it's not thoughtless. It's balanced and mixed with knowledge and discernment. And one motto that we see in our culture today, I don't know that it's too popular in conservative pure South Dakota, but it might be, I don't know, but is this notion of love is love. Have you heard this? Love is love. It's a motto that tends to go within the LGBTQ community. And I take it that the idea that it's expressing is that regardless of how one expresses love or regardless of who someone expresses love towards, love is still love. I think that's the idea. The statement is basically advocating that there's no limits or restrictions on love. Now, is that true? Is that definition of love true? No, it's not. Love ought to be seasoned with knowledge and discernment. We are called to love a certain type of way. We are called to approve certain type of behaviors. We are called to approve and think in a certain type of way and act towards one another in a certain type of way. And this way is that we are to be loving, a critical loving, though, a type of loving that's discerning and knowledgeable, and it's built upon God's truth. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. Verse 4. This is the classic passage where Paul defines what love is. First Corinthians thirteen four, page nine sixty. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. This is the verse I want us to hone in on. 
love, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. As Christians, we're called to love in this type of way. In Christians, we are called to love with knowledge and all discernment. And knowledge and all discernment is built on this notion of truth. We are not free to love in any old way. We've been given a word from God. And our feelings and our emotions and the way we think ought to conform to what it is that Scripture teaches. And this is the type of love that Paul wants to see in the Philippians. And this is the type of love that God wants to see in us. It's a discerning love. It's a love that's based upon the truth. It's a love with knowledge and all discernment. Last point. Go back to Philippians. This is the the reason for love. Paul gives us, if you're taking notes, the reason for love. Paul gives us two reasons in verse 10 for why he's praying what he's praying. There's two reasons. The first reason we'll deal with today, and the second reason we'll deal with next week. Go to that first so that in verse 10. So that, why is Paul praying these things? Why is Paul praying that the love of the Philippians might abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment? Why, Paul? So that, verse 10, you may approve what is excellent. Paul is praying for the abounding of love with with knowledge and all discernment so that the Philippians might approve what is excellent. That's the idea. That's the logical idea. That's the prayer that Paul is praying. Now let's dive into this word approve. This word means this, to draw a conclusion about worth, value, on the basis of testing. To draw a conclusion about something, something about its worth, on the basis of testing. Making a cultural point here again. We are oftentimes told not to be judgmental. Don't judge, lest ye be judged. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that in order, the purpose, the reason for why he's praying these things is so that the Philippians will learn to test things, to examine, to judge. To use their discernment. Paul is saying something here completely contrary to how much of broader culture teaches us to think. Paul is telling us to approve of things, to test things, to see if things match up. Paul encourages this. This is a mature love. A mature love is a love that approves, that tests, that discerns. And the purpose of all of this is so that Christians, is so that the Philippians, is so that you might approve of what is excellent. What is excellent? The, the, the noun here, the Greek noun, is referring to the most, superior, the, most, the most superior thing. What is of the greatest value? What is of the greatest worth in this life? The goal of our love is so that we approve that which is most excellent. And in this day, in our day, we have the temptation of spending our time on things that don't matter. And Paul's pushing against this. 
He wants the Philippians to have a mature love, a love that discerns that which is most valuable. And what is it that is most valuable? What is it? Go to Philippians 3, 7. What is the end game of all this, Paul? What's the main thing that he wants the Philippians to approve of? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul wants the Philippians to get to a point of approving, testing things, so that they can arrive at that which is most excellent. And that which is most excellent is Jesus Christ. There is nothing of more value and more worth and of more importance for your life than him. And that's what Paul wants the Philippians to see. And that's what God wants us to see. And you do have to make a choice in this life. We are presented with so many things that are, that are seen by others as valuable and meaningful. You have to make a choice. You have to draw a line. You can't go about in this world just accepting and approving of everything. If you do, you don't approve of the most important thing. And what God wants us to do, the type of love that he wants us to have, is a discerning love, a critical love, a love that is able to measure the value of something. So ultimately, we land in the right place. And that place is the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And spending your life propagating the gospel. That's where Paul wants us to land. Christians, as Christians, we're not called to thoughtlessness. This passage has a lot about, has much in it about discernment and about knowledge and about approving. And this is essential that we do as Christians. We have to have this discerning approach to life. And the point that I want to end on, the last point of, of, of application I want to end on, is I want us to adopt, as a church and as Christians, this notion of a lovingly critical outlook. A lovingly critical outlook. You don't just want to be critical because no one likes someone who's just constantly critical. Those types of people get angry and are bitter and are just constantly saying negative things. But also, we just don't want sentimentality and accepting of approval of everyone and everybody's behavior and an acceptance of everything that the world feeds you. We don't want that either. We want love and we want truth. And what we find that in, the type of maturity that ought to abound in our lives, the love that ought to mature in this church and in your life, is this love that's seasoned with truth. This love with knowledge and all discernment so that we ought to approve of what matters most. We need this mentality, a loving mentality 
a mentality is, that is built upon Jesus Christ, our love and our affection for him, and our love for one another, that we truly, deeply, and genuinely care about other people. But also, there is this notion of truth, that we do not approve of all things, but that our allegiance is to Christ and his word. And it's in this lovingly critical attitude towards life and all things that I think we find the application for this verse. So ultimately, we don't spend our lives on meaningless things, but that we pursue Christ and his righteousness. Pray with me. Father, we do pray that you would produce in us as individuals and as a church that you would abound our love more and more. That you would produce in us a love that matures, that goes on, that presses past the difficulties of life. Give us an abounding love, a love that overflows more and more, that we're constantly seeking to be matured in the way that we love you and others. And Father, we do pray for these, asso- these virtues that ought to associate love, knowledge and all discernment. Father, give us wisdom and understanding and knowing how to go about loving you and loving others. And Father, ultimately, the purpose of this is that we might approve what is excellent. We might not spend our lives wasting time on things that don't matter, on things the world wants us to think, on things the world values. But Father, we pray that we would find our end and our goal and our purpose in the person and work of Christ, in the surpassing value of knowing him. Father, we are inept to accomplish these things in our hearts, and we look to you completely and fully for your grace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit.